we've been going through the book of Proverbs. And uh, the book of Proverbs has a lot of wisdom to share, a lot of, a lot of instruction, a lot of, a lot of um, uh, principles about how to live your life. A lot of, you know, this is this these are skills for for living life, and and uh, we can come away from Proverbs and really kind of think, oh, I, I've got to I've got to try harder. I've got to I've got to put more effort into this. Uh, this is what I have to do, and we can look at it as a bunch of techniques by which we by which we live life. Um, but that's not what we want to do with Proverbs. What we want to do with Proverbs is we want to, we want to go to this book and we want to see Jesus. We want, to say, we want to say, He is worthy. And I want to be like Him. I want to be like Jesus. And because He, because of what His, what He does in me, I can be like Jesus. That's what I want to be. I want to reflect Him. I want to talk today about being blameless. Um, not being blameless, yeah. Um, and uh, and that's a big one. That's a big one. How can you and I be blameless before God and before one another? Um. And if our focus is on ourselves, it's just gonna, it will, it'll just crush us. And we need to keep our eyes on Jesus because he is worthy. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this portion of, of, uh, of your word, um, I ask that, uh, by your spirit, you would, again, open our eyes to see Jesus, to see how worthy he is. And uh, in seeing him and all of his perfection, that we would be drawn, drawn to want to be like our Savior, and our, like our master, not presumptuously, not, not arrogantly, but just humbly awed that the God of the universe, the king, the creator, the one who is truly worthy, would be so generous as to invite us to be like him. Thank you, O Lord. Amen. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20, verses 2 through 8. If you're using the Bibles provided here in the church, Proverbs 20, verses 2 to 8 is, pay, is on page 931. 931. Proverbs 20, verse 8. Oh, sorry, verse 2 through 8. A king's wrath strikes terror like the roar of a lion. Those who anger him forfeit their lives. It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Sluggers do not plow in season, so at harvest time they look but find nothing. 
The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are their children after them. When a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. The passage we're look, looking at begins and ends with references to the king in his role as a judge. It's, it seems to me that there's a reason for this. Uh, the previous section, which we looked at in our last message, uh, talked all about the, the mocker. So we saw in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, uh, that wine is a mocker and beer is a, a brawler. Uh, and that's not just a warning about alcohol. It's, it's also a warning about the mocker. The mocker is like a brawler who is always um, looking to pick a fight, someone who is um, uh, always looking to bring discord to, to the community and disrupt the, the social order of, of, um, of people's lives. And then a few verses before that, in verse uh, 28, it talks about this, this mocker who mocks at justice, who has no regard for the law and, and the welfare of others. And, and then verse 29 says that penalties are prepared for mockers, meaning that he will face judgment and be punished for his crimes. And in this context, I think it's relevant to speak of the king who brings judgment. And so the warning in verse 2, a king's wrath strikes terror like the roar of a lion. Those who anger him forfeit their lives. Uh, we've seen this, this uh, comparison before of the king to uh, his wrath like the terror of, a, of the roar of a lion. Uh, it, it means that he has, he has great power. He holds the power of life and of death. And in his, in his capacity as a, as a judge, that that wrath is not the reckless rage of a despot, right? This is this this wrath is the righteous outrage against injustice. It's righteous outrage against evil. You 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 can't be a a righteous judge and look at evil and say and shrug your shoulders. Oh well, if, if there's not a out if there's not outrage at injustice then that, that judge is not righteous. And so um, this, this outrage here, this, this rage, this wrath, is not reckless rage. It's not a despot, um, uh, just angry at everything. But th- it is this out- righteous outrage against injustice and evil. He judges the mocker who disrupts society and breaks the law. And the point of the verse is, is don't anger Someone like this. Don't anger someone who is so powerful uh, because it could mean the loss of your life. But it's also a warning. Don't be the mocker. Right? Don't, be, don't be like a, a, a mocker. Uh, that kind of person who incurs the anger of the king. And so the wise person sees all of this and, and he, knows not, he knows enough that I don't want to go down the road which leads to becoming a mocker. I want to, I want to learn from this. And so verse 3 goes on to say um, that we should avoid strife, which is the opposite 
of being a brawler. And then verses 4 to 6 warn about some other characters who stray from wisdom. We read about the sluggard who doesn't plow in season. We read about the the, the person whose who's heart, that deceptive person whose heart is a is deep waters. And we read about the many who claim to have unfailing love. And it's worth noting that these three warnings mirror the qualities that we saw in Proverbs chapter 19, verses 21 through 24, or at least three of the qualities we saw in those verses. Right? So uh, Proverbs 19, verse 24 talks about the sluggard who buries his hand in the dish. And verse 21 talks about many are the plans in a person's heart. And verse 22 talks about uh, what that a person, what a person desires is unfailing love. So do you see that symmetry going on here? Where you have this center section that talks about the mocker, and then you have these two outer sections that kind of touch upon the same themes. That's why I'm convinced that, that Proverbs is not just this random collection of sayings, you know, or Solomon just someday, one day begins, okay, I'm going to write this down, and oh, here's another wise saying, oh, here, oh, oh, this one is good, here's another one, and he just writes down a whole bunch of random sayings. I'm really beginning the, the, the sense that what Solomon is, is, is doing, he's writing a poem, or a series of poems, and that poem tells a story. And so we ask the question, what's the story here? What is the story that Solomon is telling us in this particular passage? And based on verse 7, I think the story he's telling here is about the righteous person who leads a blameless life. The one whose spiritual integrity keeps him walking on the upright path. Solomon is telling us about a person who is the opposite of a mocker. This blameless person will not incur the wrath of the king. This is what our life is supposed to be like if we want to stay on the path of wisdom and we don't want to stray from it, if we don't want to become a mocker. And so with that in mind, what I want to do this morning is look at these five qualities in this particular passage that protect us from becoming mockers, to put ourselves into this story. Say, how can I be this kind of person who doesn't walk astray, who doesn't become the mocker? There are, there are four qualities here, or five qualities here that we're going to look at. We want to pursue peace. We want to work diligently. We want to desire authenticity. We want to practice faithfulness. And thus we will live blamelessly. All right. So number one, let's pursue peace. We live in a fighting society. We live in a violent society. One writer describes our age as an age when social media puts an immense premium on cultivating anger and indignation. I don't know the I don't know the algorithms um, that uh, the 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 social media uh, uses, but I suspect that there's um, there's something there that that says, hey, we can trigger. If we can trigger anger, if we can trigger indignation, that will get things, we'll make more profit, bottom line. And against that backdrop, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3 is very timely. It is to one's honor 
to avoid strife. But every fool is quick to quarrel. A person who is quick to quarrel is, is impatient, lacks self-control. They don't hesitate to jump into a fight. They love to argue. Some people think that the way to be, the way to be um, esteemed is by fighting. But the scripture says that, it says, true honor is for those who abstain from strife. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we never have differences with people, right? Um, there are times we, when we need to disagree, and there are times when we need to disagree in order to deepen our faith. Came across this, um, uh, this quote a little while ago that just kind of really, really, uh, hit me. It said, this guy named Oliver O'Donovan says this, disagreements are openings for those who share a common faith to explore and resolve important tensions within the context of communion. You and I have a strong enough relationship in Christ that we're able to disagree. And through that disagreement, to grow. And so sometimes there needs to be disagreements. Sometimes we need to, do we need to, we, we can't shy away from it and say, oh, I don't want to, I want to avoid all disputes and, 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 uh, and, and fights. And so I'm just going to kind of give in. Sometimes we need to be strong enough in our relationship that we can disagree and still love each other. If, it would be very boring. It would, we would not grow very much at all if I agreed with everybody and everybody agreed with me. Boring. Good to have a good fight once in a while. But strife is much more than just a difference of viewpoint. Uh, Peter Kroll uh, says this, strife is the sort of disagreements that look like knock-down, drag-em-out fights that turn people into enemies of one another, and the fool loves to engage in such fights, loves to engage in them. The wise person steers clear of them, or if they're caught up in a, in a dispute, they know when to cease. There are times when we need to take a stand for truth. There are times when we need to take a stand for what's right. Uh, and in the pursuit of peace, there are times when we need to confront. But the bent of our heart cannot be towards strife. The bent of our heart just can't be in that direction. If God has changed our hearts, it can't be bent towards strife. Where it's possible, we want to de-escalate. When we've been wronged, we may want justice. We may desire justice. We may even push for justice, but we don't seek revenge. In a culture of outrage and indignation, we control our temper. We guard our mouth by the power of God's Spirit. We want to be like Jesus with the power of gentleness. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. By his grace, we want to live like that. We want to be people of peace. Secondly, let's work diligently. A slugger. Is, uh, is lazy and undisciplined, yet he expects to gain a return for doing nothing. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. Sluggers do not plow in season, so at harvest time they look but find nothing. 
Uh, in ancient Israel, the season for plowing was the autumn and, and winter months, right? So the rainy season, uh, usually was from mid-October onward. And even with the help of a, of a team of oxen or, or donkeys, it was hard work, especially, you know, if, uh, if your particular piece of property was, was really hilly. Uh, just, just very hard work. And, and so the farmer waited for the rains to come to, to soften the, the ground a little bit. But here's this slugger, and he, he takes absolutely no initiative to plow through the, through the autumn or, or winter months. And maybe he rationalizes by saying, oh, it, it's too cold out. It's, it's, it's too wet out. Or, um, maybe he thinks, well, tomorrow. Right? I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. Not today, but just, just, I'll get to it. Or, or maybe um, he's so self-absorbed that he doesn't notice, just doesn't pay attention to what the season is. Or maybe he just doesn't want to, uh, to work hard. Whatever the reason, he, pro- he procrastinates, he neglects his responsibility, and the opportunity passes. Now, fast forward six months, right? The time to plow, the time to sow has Past. The, the slugger has put off and put off and put off doing the work. And you and I know there's going to be no harvest, right? You and I know that. Um, our actions or inactions have consequences. Yet what does the sluggard expect? The, the scene here is almost, almost comical. At harvest time, he comes looking for his crops. The, the sense of the sense of, uh, of the verse is that he comes asking, "Hey, where's my crops?" And some interpreters even think that he comes demanding, almost a sense of entitlement. He comes demanding a harvest. And of course, there's nothing in the fields, right? No plowing, no no sowing, no growing. There's nothing there. And and the the lesson is obvious, right, for us that uh, we're not to be like the sluggard. We are we're to work diligently. Now th- that doesn't mean that we work endlessly. We're to work diligently. Doesn't mean we work endlessly. There is a time and a need for rest. There is a time and a need for conversation, time and a need for play, for, for eating, for gathering, for celebrating. There, there's times, but we stray from God's wisdom when doing nothing becomes our habit. A fellow named Scott Hubbard puts it like this. The image of God was never meant to yawn through life. So when it's time to tackle the tasks that God has given to us, we want to apply ourselves. We want to work diligently. We don't want to shirk responsibility. Uh, to quote Hubbard again, we don't want to find that autumn has passed, winter has come, and opportunity has slipped through our fingers. We want to be like Jesus, who said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus knew how to rest. Jesus never seemed to be in a hurry. Jesus never seemed to be too busy. 
But at the end of his life, he could say that he finished the work his father gave him to do. And because his work is finished, we can work as well. We can, through faith, be empowered to work and do what the Father calls us to do. And so let's work diligently. Number three, let's desire authenticity. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. Person is not always what he or she seems. But what are, the, what are these purposes that lie deep in a person's heart? What are these purposes? A few suggestions here, okay? Uh, some interpreters take it to be a person's unspoken thoughts, their deep secrets, their, maybe their suppressed feelings, maybe their hidden motives. But if you're really skilled, then you'll be able to, to bring those to the surface. So if you're a, a really skilled counselor, maybe, you can sit and talk and, and, and through that draw out all those suppressed feelings of a, of a person. Another interpretation is that uh, these, uh, these um, uh, purposes are, are actually wise counsel that's not readily apparent. Uh, you, you've heard people say, oh, um, oh, that, that person is so, so deep. Um, kind of meaning that they, they have, they have things in them that, that are so profound that, that, um, it, it takes skill, it takes wisdom, a person of insight to be able to access those deep, profound truths in a person. So that's another way that people sometimes talk, talk about this verse. And I think there's, 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 um, some sense in, in those, uh, interpretations. But that metaphor, deep waters, has a more pejorative, almost evil connotation. And, and so these purposes are really, they're, they're hidden schemes. They're, they're plots to get what we want, even at the expense of, of others. Bruce Waltzke describes it as conniving. So he says, the hidden counsels of his heart in his self-talk do not aim to serve the community but himself. Another writer def- identifies deep waters as deep-seated, heart-level, sinful dynamics. And the prophet Isaiah condemns this kind of scheming. He says, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do, do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? Isaiah 29, verse 15. See, our natural tendency is to hide our sinful plans, hide our sinful desires and and motives, to keep them well below the surface. We're not going to want people to know all the dark, sinful stuff going on in our minds and in our hearts. We keep them well below the surface. We, we keep them secret, carefully concealed, so as to mislead and deceive. And so I take this verse as a warning that the deep purposes of the sinful heart, those deep purposes, they will be found out. 
Right? The one who has understanding, the one who has insight, draws them out. It's, it's a warning to us. We think those, those, you know, secret plots we have, we can keep them, we can keep them below the surface and no one will ever see them. But they will be exposed. They will be found out. The insightful person will draw out self-centered purposes and bring them to the surface. Why is that? How is the, the, the insightful person able to do that? Because the wise person understands the human heart. The wise person understands human nature. See, the wise person goes to God's word and, 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 and we look at God's word and what does it teach us? It teaches us, it teaches us that all of us have a sin nature. And the wise person looks at that, that mirror of God's word and he looks at his own life and he says, I'm a sinner. I understand my own heart. I know, I understand how I respond. I understand that the stuff that goes on in my, in my, in my heart, in my thoughts, in my, and, and, and I know what I'm like. And so the, the wise person recognizes sin for what is, what it is. Not all purposes are beneficial. Not all the plans that people have in their, in their lives, in their hearts are beneficial for others or honoring to God. And so the person with wisdom sees sinful purposes clearly in the light of Christ. Doesn't call evil good. Doesn't call a, a lie true. But he or she discerns and exposes what is wicked, what is wrong. And so the warning here, the call here is for, for us, don't harbor deep, Selfish purposes. Don't, don't fool yourself. Right? Don't think, you know what? It, it won't be found out. Don't harbor deep, selfish purposes. What then is the opposite? What's the opposite? I've, um, I've settled on the word authenticity. But I, I want to be careful with this word because in our day and age, uh, authenticity often means being, it means being true to yourself. That, that's how authenticity is, is often taken to, to mean. This is the authentic me. This is the real me. That's how we understand authenticity. But the authenticity we see in Proverbs it's not so much about being true to yourself. It's about being true to God and then true to others. And so we're authentic by exposing, confessing, and turning from sinful purposes. We're not hiding selfish plots. We're not hiding schemes against people. Instead, our, 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 our schemes, our plan, our plots, our plans, our purposes are informed by a genuine, honest, sincere faith in the presence of God. He sees everything about me and in the presence of people. I want to be honest with those around me. 
And the reason we can do all of this, especially to be, you know, open and honest before God, the reason we can, we can do that is, is because God looked into the depths of our soul, right? And he, he looked right down into the very, very, um, the, the part of us that we thought was, was like hidden, where nobody can see. And God looked into the very depths of our soul, saw the very, very worst about us, and he still loved us. But he didn't love us by leaving us to ourself, authentically sinful, He loved us by dying for us to take away the guilt and to take away the shame, to take away the stain, take away the harm of our sin. He died to take it all away. He cleansed us so that instead of hidden purposes to harm others, we might now have purposes to bless people and to and to glorify God. And one of the ways we bless people is by being the one who has insight. One of the ways we bless each other is, is God help me to grow in wisdom. Help me to be a person of insight. In other words, we gently, lovingly, carefully, wisely want to draw out the sin in each other's lives in order to encourage authentic faith. Now, I said carefully, right? because what we don't want to do is go around pointing fingers, looking for sin in each other's lives. We don't want that kind of community, right, where everybody is kind of suspicious of everybody else, where everybody is kind of always looking out for all the faults in everybody else's lives. We don't want to be that kind of community. But what we want to do, what we want to do is we want to bless each other by developing strong relationships, strong enough where we can be honest enough to come alongside each other. And as one person puts it, collectively push each other by grace in the direction of Christ-likeness. That's the kind of community we want to be. One where those relationships are strong enough that we can honestly come alongside each other and encourage one another to be like Jesus. Let's value, desire that kind of authenticity. Larry Crabb, years and years ago, said uh, this about um, uh, authenticity. He said, he said um, the, the movement in authenticity was let's be totally open with each other. And he says, no, 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 no. That's the wrong authenticity. 
So it's kind of but not totally open, but totally honest. Why? Because sometimes being totally open ruins, wrecks other people. And so he warned us to be careful about this whole authenticity thing. That's why I said, you know, I, I settled on this word, but, I, but we want to be very careful about this. Authenticity. Not, not this tearing off all of our bandages type of authenticity, but that kind of authenticity that before God wants to be honest. Honest with him. Honest with one another. Number four, let's practice faithfulness. In the 1990s, there was a television show that began with the lyrics of a song by the Rembrandts. I'll be there for you. When the rain starts to pour, I'll be there for you. Like I've been there before, I'll be there for you because you're there for me too. It was a it was a catchy you know type of 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 song, and we would all love to have that kind of friend, right? Someone who will be there for us. The Proverbs chapter twenty verse six has a more pessimistic viewpoint. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. Um, not not as optimistic of uh, uh, not as not as catchy in terms of in terms of uh, uh our relationships in my lifetime i've known people who have indeed been there for their friends through the worst of times um when when everyone else had had walked away um those those friends were there they stood by. They um, together uh, faced whatever came the, their way. That kind of that kind of friendship that that was that that uh, we would all love to have. Someone who was there through thick and through thin. But I've also seen disappointment, and disloyalty, and backstabbing, and treachery between friends and families. And the reality is that it's easy to speak or to sing of one's undying love, but it's another thing to follow through. This word for unfailing love, many claim to have unfailing love. That word for unfailing love speaks of the kind of steady, faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping love that describes God's compassion, God's mercy towards us, his kindness towards us. This is not a weak offer of, you know, I'll, I'll be there if, if I can. I'll help you if I can. This is not that kind of, that kind of, you know, middling type of commitment. This is, this is a, um, a person declaring, we have a relationship. You can count on me. 
You and me, we're good. You can, you can count on me. That's what this person is claiming. That's what this person is declaring. In the strongest way possible, you and I, you can count on me. And that is a precious gift. If there is someone like that in your life, treasure it. It is a, it is a, it is an amazing gift from God. But as the question in, in the second part of verse six implies, this kind of faithfulness is hard to find. The faithful person, right? Faithful person who can find that faithful person is the one who is conscientious, who is reliable, who is trustworthy. They follow through. And the point of the Proverbs is that this is rare. You say, well, why is that so rare? Why is it so rare? Why does a person's claim of unfailing love often come up empty? I can think of a lot of reasons why people say one thing and then don't live up to it. But if we take our cues from the previous verses, here are three reasons. Disagreement, laziness, and selfishness. And so we proclaim our, our, um, our undying love, but then we have a fight and our friendship ends. We proclaim our, our undying love, but then we neglect to act when the need arises. We proclaim our love, but then we develop hidden agendas for selfish advancement, for selfish gain, and that consumes our attention, it consumes our energy, and and our relationships, our friendships, our family falls to the wayside. And so the question is, when the, when the time comes, when the need comes, will you be a faithful friend? Will I be a faithful friend that can be counted on? Will I be someone who, is, who isn't just compassionate in words, but also in deeds? Talk is cheap. You've heard that, right? Talk is cheap. But as the Apostle John exhorts us, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Jesus loves us with this kind of faithfulness, right? It's said of, of, uh, of him shortly before his betrayal, shortly before his, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, that he knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the very end. He loved us all the way to the cross. And when we're united by faith to him, he commands us to love as he loved. And he places us in the church. Right? And he, and he calls us to, to a faithful, dependable, steadfast love. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, if you have love for one another.
And so we say, I want to be that. I want to love as Jesus loved. Let's practice faithfulness. And then finally, let's live blamelessly. I suggested already that all the characteristics we've seen so far in this passage are summed up in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are the children after them. Uh, to lead a blameless life means to act or behave out of the completeness or the integrity of your heart. It means that we're fully committed to the Lord. The blameless person is not half-hearted in his devotion. She is not double-minded in her faith. Doesn't mean that we never sin. Doesn't mean that we're perfect. That's not what blamelessness means. But there is a consistency to our life because we have been made whole in Christ. And in the context of Proverbs, it means we are devoted to the path of wisdom and we will not stray from it. It means that we will pursue peace, we will work diligently, we will desire authenticity, and we will practice faithfulness. This is what it means to be blameless. We may not do it perfectly, but this is the direction of our life. God has pulled back his arrow and he has shot it. And this is the direction we are headed in. One of the reasons we are to walk in this blameless integrity is because it doesn't just affect us. This verse specifically talks about a father and how his blameless life will bless his children who walk after him. He leaves a spiritual legacy for for future generations. But we can expand this to, to say, you know what? Our life has an impact on all kinds of people around us. When we lead a blameless life, it brings blessing to a wide sphere of our relationships. And when I read that, I go... It's daunting, isn't it? It's daunting. Not only is this is this not only I look at this and I say, How? But I think of the impact that my life has on those around me. And we wonder, you know, can I really be blameless? This is really possible. And the answer, as you go through scriptures, as you go through Proverbs even, even this verse, the answer is, is yes. Proverbs is not calling us to something idealistic. It is not calling us to something impossible. It is not commanding sinless perfection, but it neither is it just pretending to be spiritual. 
It's it's not just you know this. Uh, here's a here's a good idea, and take it or leave it type of thing. It's calling us something serious. From a New Testament perspective, when we put our faith in Christ, we are united with Him. We are made a new creation with a new life, so that from a transformed heart, in reliance on the Spirit, we are empowered to lead a blameless life. We are empowered to do that. And so what God commands, what God calls us to, he supplies. And so one reason we live live this blameless life of integrity because it impacts those around us. God uses it to draw others. Let's go this way. This is the way of Jesus. The other reason we're to walk in blameless integrity is seen in verse in verse 8. When a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. Brings us full circle uh, from verse 2. Again, we're reminded of the king. He sits on his throne. That's his authority to judge. He winnows out evil, which is imagery taken from the threshing floor where wheat is separated from the chaff. The, the king will discern between good and evil, and all the evil that he sees will be judged and banished. Wrong will be righted. The oppressed will be protected. Injustice will be overturned. Order will be, will be restored. The wicked will be punished. And the implication is that when we stand before this king, we want to be blameless. We want to be blameless before the king. And I know that sounds strange to our ears because... Um, we've been talking about so-called spiritual qualities like peace and diligence and authenticity and faithfulness. And now it seems like we've brought this into what we consider the political arena, the king. And that sounds, that sounds so strange to our ears. I think we need to remember two things. Number one, our spiritual life spills over into every other area of our life. Our spiritual life spills over into every other area of life. And secondly, the point here is we are accountable for how we live our lives. We are accountable for our actions. Here's the problem. Human kings and other forms of human government regularly fail at winnowing out all evil. In fact, some some even pervert justice. Some, rather than upholding justice, make a mockery of it. And so we may think, why bother being a person of integrity when those without integrity are able to get get ahead at the expense of others. Why bother being a blameless person when um, the wicked prosper? Does it really matter at all? And the answer is, it matters because one day we will stand before another king 
one day we will stand before another judge. One who will be perfect in his rule. King Jesus sits on the eternal throne of heaven. And he will one day return to judge the world in righteousness. And he will remove all evil from his presence. And our longing should be to stand blameless before him and to hear his well done, good, faithful servant. That should be the longing, the desire of our hearts that we stand before this king blameless. And that is our hope, not just wishful thinking. That is our hope, our confidence, if we have put our faith in him who died and rose for us. Pastor Ram, a few weeks ago, priest preached from Colossians 1. And this is how Colossians 1, verse 22 and 23 end. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, to present you blameless. Blameless. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Present you blameless. So let us, by God's grace, continue in our faith, living peaceful, responsible, faithful, authentic, blameless lives to the glory of the sinless king who took our blame so that we could be blameless before him. I need you to look me in the eye and you need me to look you in the eye and to say, he is worthy. We will follow. Let's pray together. Lord, examine us. Search our hearts. Search our lives. If there is strife, help us to pursue peace. Is there, if there is neglect, help us to be diligent. If there is deception, help us to be authentic. If there is treachery, help us to be faithful. And so we will live blameless lives by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name. Indeed, we will continue in faith because where else would we go, Lord? You are the one who alone is worthy and we want to follow you. We want to be like you. May you be glorified in our lives. Amen.